Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Biden administration disclosed its $773 billion defense spending request uh, to Congress that rises to $813 billion if you include nuclear weapon costs covered by the Energy Department and uh, other spending across the U.S. government that supports uh, the Pentagon, including some overseas spending, including aid to Ukraine. That is a record number with a record investment in research and development, space, missile defense capabilities, as well as nuclear modernization. But the administration also has been criticized for accounting inflation at 2.4% rather than 8%, which is what it's running at. So that means that even with a 7 or 10% increase, it is tantamount to a net cut, prompting uh, the administration to propose retiring 24 uh, naval warships, 150 combat aircraft, including 22 F-22, uh, excuse me, 33 F-22 fighters, cutting back on the F-35 program and other budget moves. Cuts that are widely seen, however, as queuing up Congress to swing in with tens of billions of dollars in additional funding to reverse them, with lawmakers uh, suggesting that another $40 billion uh, could go to the Pentagon. Meanwhile, Russia's war in Ukraine continues as European governments balance their support for Kiev with their desire to get that back to normal with both Moscow as well as China. Speaking of China, air traffic is, has dramatically slowed and Canada has picked the F-35 as its next fighter. It's Kel Surprise, as Richard and I discussed <laughs> earlier in the week. Uh, and COVID infections, unfortunately, are rising again, this time of the BA2 variant. To date, COVID has killed at least 982,000 Americans and more than 6.2 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuz of the independent uh, equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. It wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all uh, convening. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and uh, Trade Show. And Bell is sponsoring our coverage at the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium, both of them that are happening over the next coming days, one in National Harbor, Maryland, and the other in Nashville, Tennessee. Check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. Uh, Ron, uh, walk us through the week and how investors responded uh, to the U.S. Uh, spending measure, defense spending, or excuse me, the administration's defense uh, spending uh, request to Congress. Yeah, so the, the, on a week where the S&P was essentially flat, um, the defense stocks were down a little bit. Uh, you know, Northrop Grumman's a good bellwether for what's going on. It was down uh, less than a percent. Um, if you look at you know some of the smaller plays like like Rocket Lab, um, you know, Space Play, uh, they were down maybe half a percent. Uh, Boeing was up a percent. So you just saw a little bit of noise bouncing around a, a roughly flat market. Uh, when you look at other other variables on on the week, you know WTI crude was about hundred dollars, so it, it fell back a bit. I think that was on the news that um, yeah, the U.S. government might release uh, a bunch of oil. Um, the ten-year yield was about just under two and a half percent. 
I think the big the big news from a macro perspective was on Thursday you saw an inversion of the ten year and two year yield. Um, two thirds of the time uh, when that happens, that suggests that a recession could happen in the next year or so. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. I mean, I think the market was trying to scratch its head on, you know, is this real? Is it head fake? What's it all mean? Um, but uh, I, I would say on the you know budget release specifically. I don't think there was a heck of a lot of surprises either way, sort of, you know, and you kind of saw that with, you know, the reaction of the stocks. You'd seen a bigger move up or down had there been uh, uh, a, uh, a real surprise. Are investors worried that actually on the inflation numbers or have they ju- or are they just thinking rather simplistically, right? 773 billion, good number, bigger than normal, or are folks looking at this in, in sort of a nuanced way? Or is it option three, which is, Congress is going to make up any difference anyway, so I really don't need to be worried about F-35s or ship retirements or things like that. Yeah, I think it's option three, right? And I think when when investors look at, you know, give an example, you know, the, the F-35 members, that, that'll be plussed up. When investors look at uh, no F-18s in the budget, they, they think they kind of figure, well, that's probably not going to happen, that, that you'll see plus ups. And, and I think folks are looking at uh, the way you know the budget was teed up this year from lessons they learned last year that you know the the, the administration really kind of leaned forward on r and d and next technology and then you know Congress uh, plussed up a lot of the legacy systems so I think they're they're expecting that and and on, on, as part of that that in, in some of the inflation will get passed through probably not all of it but some of it will normally uh, we would go to sash for European perspective but we're gonna go to Richard uh, first Richard thanks very much for joining us twice in one week uh, or, uh, you know give us give us your sense now that you've had a couple of days to look at the budget uh, I know that you've been tracking the air developments but obviously you look at the entire measure what are some of the things that that jumped out to you well absolutely what ron just said a lot of it appears to be either plus up bait or you know deliberate plus up bait or accidental plus up bait so you know the headline figures for the increase while they sound modest and barely keeping up with inflation are probably going to be followed by a very substantial add-on package um you know super hornets of course that's exactly right F-35s, that's a really complicated story because, you know, the more we do a skyline chart of output, even with the F-35As for the Air Force intake going down to 33, you still have a real problem. I mean, you can't keep all the allies who want these planes now happy and still keep that 156 stated output limit. So in other words, you could see additional planes added in the congressional plus-up process, but does it matter if they're not gonna raise that 156 ceiling? So very many big questions there. A lot of the retirements looked like plus-up bait to me, retiring, what, 30-something F-22s at this point, when NGAD is not gonna happen in terms of deployability for another decade. That's just waiting for Congress to intervene. Ditto probably for some of the AWACS and JSTARs and whatever else. And of course, A-10, everyone's favorite thing to talk about retiring, but never actually being given the latitude to retire. So, so much of this looked like plus-up bait. I think we're going to have a really good budget when all is said and done, um, especially from an air power standpoint that just has to go through that process. Well, let me let me just ask one uh, follow up, though. Right. I mean, from the Air Force's perspective, it looks like the Air Force has been reluctant to get block three airplanes that later have to be updated. Right. So, I mean, there uh, it appears that their decision making is colored a little bit on, hey, guys, I don't want you to build airplanes to build airplanes if they're not the airplanes that I want to my spec uh, at this point. I mean, th- does it make sense to build for the sake of building at this point 
um, I mean, is there any residual value or is it, as we all know, more expensive to go into an airplane after it's been built and be modified than it is to just do it on the line? It's, uh, I would argue, completely irrelevant. I mean, from a technical standpoint, you're exactly right. Boy, it would be great to wait a few years, but there are many hundreds of planes that will need modification. And what we're talking about is a measure that reduces from eh, probably 48 to 33. So we're talking about rework on, oh, 15 planes. This is hardly something that moves the needle in terms of future upgrade requirements. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, everything else that's going to be delivered in that time is, you know, the 156 a year, that's going to need TRL3 and ultimately Block 4 and whatever else. So screwing around with numbers looks like an industrial-based consideration issue. Um, and again, still waiting. It would be wonderful if someone could say, here's what we need to do to get to the 180, 190, even 200 per year that the market seems to demand. Uh, and I should I should uh, point out that even though we we um, discussed uh, an expectation and, and really a lot of folks had it that uh, the FARO program, the future armed reconnaissance aircraft uh, would be in jeopardy, it turns out that it was uh, supported uh, in the budget, ultimately. Right. I mean, so, you know, even though uh, and, and Sash was the one who raised it, you know, whether it was questions about tanks or whether or not it was about the validity of attack helicopters, it looks like they, you know, the tanks and attack helicopters are actually in the budget. Yeah, I mean, that's right to an extent. It, you know, FARA still has a very long way to go. And I still feel much better about FARA than I do about FARA, just because, you know, frankly, people talk about it as an attack machine, but it's going to be so long before it has the kind of payload and capabilities and sensor and sensors and whatever else of an Apache. So, what you're talking about now is an extremely expensive platform that's going to do the $4 million geo-warrior mission, which probably will be overtaken by drones in a few years. If we were talking about a full-up attack helicopter, which maybe we will in the next decade, I, then I would feel better about those numbers. But in the meantime, it just seems like it's just kind of moving along with you know, a limited level of rationale. Um, Sash, uh, let me bring you into the discussion. I mean, what did you see that was interesting uh, in our spending measure? Because I always think it's really, you know, interesting to, uh, you know, get a thoughtful uh, overseas observer looking at at what it is we're doing, because it is an extraordinary pile of money, even, even if it may not be enough and inflation <laughs> is eating into it from a European perspective. It's, it's a rather startling sum, isn't it? It's a huge amount of money. Uh, and, you, you know, Europeans, you know, look at it and weep. Uh, on the other hand, it should be shaming Europeans into spending more, and th they're starting to, but it's always too little too late. Um, I, you know, the, in as much as there's a consensus in Europe, and there isn't, uh, it's that this budget came at the wrong time. Basically, this budget must have been frozen, you know, only a, only a week or so after the invasion of Ukraine. And it really is a wholly unrealistic um, a budget in terms of what the US military really needs based on the situation that we're in now. But, you know, you, you have a, a budget uh, timeline, you have to stick to it, so you're going to produce it. But it's actually of the budgets that you produce, it's, it's, it's more meaningless. I realize that's slightly uh, uh, tautological than most, because it's very apparent, as you say, that there are going to be plus ups everywhere. It's very apparent that it bears no relationship whatsoever to how the world has changed in the last month, let alone any possible lessons learned uh, in the last month. So in that respect, it's much more of a placeholder, albeit a really big one, than anything else. And 
I mean, you have the single most politicized procedural defense budget process of any major nation. Um, and that is both criticism and praise. Um, you can take it as you wish. Um, and therefore, you know, the headline figure, I think Europeans have uh, almost given up worrying about the headline figure because they know that the, the outcome is going to be radically different. Don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be radically different. Um, and this year, more than most. Germany obviously uh, was most pronounced, right? I mean, the $100 billion increase, 2% of GDP, uh, that was uh, controversial uh, and remains uh, controversial because there are voices in Germany who are like, hey, let's not go crazy about shutting the door on Russia, right? I mean, Steinmeier, for example, uh, continues to talk about um, sort of getting back to normal, if you will, with, with the Russians at some point, and indeed getting back to normal with the Chinese. I mean, I think that there are many in Europe who are looking at this and saying, hang on a second, I'm not sure I really want to live in a totally different world. Uh, if, you know, we can sort of muddle along and, and actually not pay more, a lot of very prominent people are up for election. Um, you know, sort of give it, give us your sense on how this is shaping spending patterns, including in Germany, right? What we're hearing about how the Germans will be spending this bounty. Yeah, okay. So um, always worth remembering that the German, I mean, German governments are almost coalitions. This is a broader coalition than most, which means it has a wide variety of opinions. And bringing those all together uh, to an agreed position is, you know, more than usually different, uh, difficult. And Steinmeier's view, which is we've got to get back to something approximating to normality with both Russia and China, represents absolute core SPD, Social, uh, Social Democratic Party, principles of the last 50 years. I mean, Willy Brandt was starting to uh, to talk about um, uh, having trade relations with Russia back in the 1970s uh, and, you know, through uh, through the 80s. So he, you know, this is very, very conventional SPD stuff. Uh, it is not shared widely. I mean, it's not clearly not shared, shared by his chancellor, one. It's not shared by the by all of the rest of the coalition, although the rest of the coalition may not be as um, bullish into on defence spending as um, Johnson Schultz has been either. But um, I would, be, you know, I, I think what you're seeing here is almost a, a, an orthodoxist who is uh, try, trying to get back to the, the status quo ante. And it's very apparent when you look, when you zoom out and look at it from a European perspective that that is not the consensus anymore. There's clearly concern, for example, um, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky said, you know, this week was pretty hard on France and said, you know, to paraphrase, you are not helping. Um, and there has been some criticism uh, by the UK that France and Germany are trying to get Ukraine to uh, come to some sort of agreement with Russia much earlier and much more, you know, accommodating to Russia than the UK thinks is appropriate. So, I mean, you know, it shows there are different opinions. But I would highlight that the European Union had a uh, effectively a video conference with uh, China this week and was very, you know, it, it certainly reported as being much more hardline, much more, you know, you, the Chinese, have actually got to stay out of uh, supporting Russia and stay out of um, interfering with Ukraine because ultimately Ukraine is, is part of Europe. I was going to say it was a small E, but, you know, clearly not Europe politically, but Europe geographically. And Chinese interference is difficult. And I think the EU, which surprises me, frankly, is beginning to realise that relations with China can't go back to normal, let alone with Russia. Germany will always want to do that because Germany is the 
you know, arguably one of the world's greatest export nations. But um, they are being outnumbered and outvoted, but also out influenced at the moment by other countries in in Europe. Uh, and so I'd be, you know, I'd be a bit, I'd be a bit cautious about just listening to. Um, uh, Mrs. Steinmeier, and thinking that represents settled German opinion. I don't think it does. And uh, real quick, prioritization of spending, where are the Germans going to be putting their money? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, this is a report on Reuters this week um, of the current state of discussions over how to spend 100 billion. I mean, what a great um, uh, uh, you know, set of debates to have. You know, you have the, effectively this enormous check, how are we going to divvy it up? Um, and what was interesting, uh, and it's referred to in Germany as the special fund, is that at present, although, you know, I don't think this is yet, uh, uh, again, settled, the, uh, the broad thought is that around 40%, 40 billion will be spent on the Air Force. That buys a lot of spares. The, the Luftwaffe needs a lot of spares and weapons. Um, but I think it probably also buys F-35. Um, and, you know, F-35 could be more than a quarter of that easily. Um, it buys more uh, Eurofighter Typhoons. It buys probably a few more A400Ms and a lot of spares for that as well. And then a heavy um, support helicopter, probably HH50 or the, the, the H53. Um, but so the Air Force does very well out of this. 27 billion euros in command and control and modern, you know, updated radios and so forth. That gets spread much more broadly. I mean, that, that you know, there's a lot of German industry that um, uh, can compete for that. And uh, I think, it, you know, the com command and control systems, I think that goes all the way down to uh, infantry, uh, soldier systems and so forth. 17 billion just for the army, ammunition, tanks, trucks, and then 10 billion euros for the Navy. The Navy really comes at this um, relatively poorly. But remember, behind all of this, German defence spending is also going up on an annual basis towards 2%. So, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very, very positive thing. But I think, you know, our takeaway was, Air Force has actually done much better out of this than we expected. Army, probably a bit less. Ron and Richard, anything you guys want to uh, add to that uh, overall on, on defense spending in general? Yeah, yeah. the thing I'd add you know, from, a, from a U.S. perspective, I mean, it was, I think, relatively similar here. I mean, right, I mean, the, the Air Force and uh, um, space and the Navy did better than the Army, right? I mean, Army aviation had some hits. Um, we had to dig hard. Uh, through the documents to find the stuff for the support for future vertical lift. Um, so it, it you know, kind of seems like, you know, that the logic that the army might be a bit of a bill payer for the other two services in the current environment um, played out. Now, who knows? I mean, that might change a lot when, you know, Congress does their plus ups and so on and so forth. But I mean, just silly stuff. I mean, there was nothing in there for Abrams. And we all know Abrams is going to get plus up. I mean, as long as I've been doing this, Abrams gotten, has gotten plus up every right. year. Um, so, so we'll see how it all plays out, but it, it does seem like the army broadly didn't do as well as the other services. And we should point out, right. I mean, there were in strength reductions in each of the military services, uh, ultimately, um, you know, some of which will be, uh, bought back and then the space force expands, but that's just because they're getting the space development agency is shifting over, uh, to, to them. Um, uh, Richard, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah. I just point out that we talk about relative market shares for the various services uh, to a certain extent, we have to first get back to median, you know, historically the three major services had been roughly equal, but over the last decade or so, the army had massively outperformed because of course of Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever else. Um, already we were heading back 
to the Navy and Air Force getting back to where they were. I think the Air Force had a low of about 19%. And historically, it's been, you know, 25 plus. So in addition to getting back there, how long does it take them? Uh, do they outperform because of the relevance of air power? And and of course, ditto for the Blue Water Navy too. The Marines had been pretty well looked after during the last decade, but not so much the Blue Water Navy. So it's it's hard to resist this battle as being kind of Navy versus Army. I think the Air Force does very well getting back to where it was and perhaps even higher because of the overall utility and air power in both the European and Asian scenarios. And therefore you're looking at effectively a, a budget battle between the Navy and the Army. Um, and I have to say there's uh, considerable outrage that will be very palpable uh, over the next uh, three days uh, at, at Navy League, where that's going to be that's uh, going to be uh, manifest uh, in terms of the retirements. Right? I mean, some of these ships are very new littoral combat ships and the Navy's attitude is, well, you know, we just want different stuff and there are gearbox problems. Right. Almost like, well, what I mean, if there are gearbox problems, why are you accepting ships with gearbox problems? Right. I mean, wouldn't you just fix the gearbox problems and they seem to be saying oh it's that's such a bore you know let's just get rid of get rid of the ships i wish i could be like that you know the next time um uh you know next time we have a car problem is you know yeah let's just get rid of that car and just buy a new one um sash did you have anything you wanted to add one of you had an h60w point you wanted to make which, which one of you yeah. was that yeah, yeah ahead, i'm actually I, I just had i had two quick problems uh, uh issues to bring up, uh, and apologies, just to catch up on Germany again. Um, there's quite an interesting story on Reuters suggesting that Germany is going to go for a, directly for a, um, an anti-missile uh, system, particularly to protect Germany from uh, the Russians firing the Iskander uh, intermediate range ballistic missile from uh, Kaliningrad. And what's interesting is that rather than necessarily continuing with the Meads missile program, or at least that is not emphasized. They're actually looking at buying direct off the shelf, either from the US, um, possibly bad, possibly just a, a very updated Patriot, or Arrow, the Arrow missile system from Israel. And I think that, you know, if this is the case, and I, I think this is, a, you know, I'm concerned that this is uh, not necessarily a hard story yet. Uh, what we're seeing here with Germany is just a feeling that Meads has taken a decade. Yeah, easily a decade. Uh, to come to fruition, it's probably a, it would probably have been a very good system, um, but it, it's altogether too complex. And actually, a straightforward anti-missile system off the shelf, let's say FAD or or Arrow, would provide the safety from Kaliningrad that uh, Germany now requires. Second point: I was very interested by the um, effectively the the termination, albeit with a with a sort of half years funding this year of the. HH60W uh, Combat Search and Rescue Program. Um, you know, listeners probably where I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet from Ukraine about actually where the helicopters are as survivable as we would like them to be on what is a, a very dispersed and non-linear battlefield, i.e. some guy with a shoreide missile can step from, uh, you know, behind a tree and shoot you down. It's not that there is a, a well-delineated forward line of own troops. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that the, the discussion about the termination of the Caesar capability specifically said these things are not survivable in a, in a near-peer uh, war anymore, um, which has been our view. You know, helicopters, 
become very, very high risk uh, in a near-peer conflict, as the Russians have discovered. Uh, I, I actually, um, you know, would, would agree, you know, the whole, um, I think a lot of the conventional CSAR mission has been undercut. I can't help but wonder if they're not looking to FARA and perhaps the V-280 as, you know, sort of the follow-on for CV-22 and maybe thinking about that for you know, supplementing or, or even replacing that mission sometime in the 2030s. I uh, would be remiss if I if I uh, didn't say this, not just, you know, on behalf of our sponsor, but we are talking to, and I have been talking to Army aviation leaders. And next week, hopefully, we're going to have a series of interviews from Quad A uh, from uh, Army aviation leaders. And they would argue, look, I mean, in, in the U.S. order of battle, we fight fundamentally differently than how the Ukraine battle is unfolding and how badly the Russian forces are doing. We would have infantry that would be able to clear. Uh, we have different sorts of tactics we'd be using. We have different forms of technology uh, that um, will will allow us to uh, more uh, effectively use Helleborn assets um, than, than you know, what we are seeing. So, you know, I commend everybody to check out our conversation uh, when we have it with uh, Major General uh, Dave Francis, who is the commander of Army Aviation, uh, who we're going to uh, talk to um, next week at Quad A. Um, let, let me uh, shift gears, uh, commercial aviation. But before uh, we get there, uh, a quick uh, word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Uh, let's shift to the commercial aviation uh, conversation. Ron, start us off right. China traffic uh, slowing uh, rather dramatically. Obviously, Shanghai in lockdown. China trying to make sure uh, that it um, minimizes uh, COVID uh, infection. Uh, I mean, that's been a goal since the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, even if it may have originated in China. From from your perspective, what does this mean? And what does AirCap tell us in, in the results that they just uh, posted? Uh, because you are a little worried about some of these uh, figures and trends. Let's put it that yeah, way. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, China, as we all know, is a major aviation market with it, um, you know, uh, really declined pretty materially on the heels of um, COVID lockdowns there. Um, you know, without China really coming back, it's hard to get kind of the whole global order back, right? I mean, it's a big piece of Asia, obviously. Um, and, and that's had knock-on effects. So, you know, one of the, one of the impacts is um, we haven't seen um, any maxes go back into service in China. And, and you know, roughly speaking, that China has about 150 maxes on the ground. Um, those would have to go back into service, presumably before they start taking delivery of new aircraft. And, and given the current domestic travel situation, international for that matter, uh, for China, um, that doesn't bode well for those aircraft going back into service and that has knock-on effects for the new aircraft. Um, you know, so it, that, that's a factor. Um, you know, AirCap reported this week uh, and they, I think, gave as much as they could around the uncertainty of their exposure to the aircraft in um, in, in Russia. Um, one interesting kind of knock on from that is, you know, when you have these aircraft there, will they get out? Looks like they probably won't. And even if they do, will they have their maintenance paperwork, right? Because the fear is, you know, aircraft will be cannibalized to support other aircraft and then all the maintenance records gets, gets messed up and that in and of itself can just render an airplane uh, for practical purposes useless. That, you know, the, the discussion came why don't we keep maintenance records for aircraft in the cloud? Um, it's kind of hard to believe that that's never come up before, but 
So there you have it, uh, that maybe we'll see sort of modern digital records for aircraft uh, maintenance records. So uh, that might be one positive thing that, that comes out of this. But, um, you know, the insurance coverage and their exposure, I mean, they're, you know, because everything's sort of being negotiated now, it was hard for them to give color. Um, one of the other things they mentioned, and this is more on a Boeing front, they're only expecting to take maybe six max airplanes this year and maybe only three 787s. That's well below, I think, what anybody was anticipating Boeing would be delivering, particularly to the largest lessor uh, on the planet. Um, so it's, you're starting to see uh, kind of a wave of evidence between what's going on in China with regard to COVID, uh, what they're saying to some of the customers that Boeing's deliveries this year might fall well short of what investors were anticipating. Uh, and that implies their cash flow this year might be well short of what investors were anticipating. I, I don't have a great deal to, um, to add to uh, what Ron said there, but just to, I mean, highlight that there was, uh, I, you know, quite a, a good piece of research by John Ostrawa on the air current. Just again, um, you know, noting that or, or pos- positing that uh, bone production of new Maxes with Chinese tailplanes is being cut back because they built up enough stock. Let's be honest, the Chinese aren't taking them for for all sorts of reasons. Uh, is it related to uh, the crash of the Dash 700? Is it related to uh, the fact that the Chinese are still playing politics with MAX recertification? Or is it simply that they have no need for new uh, aircraft uh, at the moment, given how bad uh, Chinese air, uh, traffic is? But if it is the case that MAX production uh, to China is falling, you know, remember, China has been a comfortable third of 737, NG, MAX, whatever, uh, deliveries over the last um, probably decade now. And so if you're not producing for China, your volumes are going to be down. And that would suggest Boeing is going to stay nearer to the 31 aircraft a month that it's been trying to get to, rather than getting up to the 50 a month, which is what they've been talking about. Richard? Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty clear that, you know, I agree completely with Sash, of course, the China market is going to stay depressed for some time because they don't appear to be changing their rather abysmal tactics on the COVID front. You know, when you've got cities locked down, a, a strategy of complete lockdowns and a, well, you know, dubious vaccine, you know, right now numbers are down about, uh, I believe, close to 30% from peak, which is far worse than any domestic market, considering at one point they'd been 100% of peak it's pretty clear they're going to sort of go along in this dismal pattern. And even if their political system comes to favor Boeing again, or at least regard, you know, treat them in, in, in equal as equals, it's still going to be a long time before they need jets. So this is not a happy situation. Uh, and any uh, traffic trend update from any of you on this BA2 variant uh at all right i mean is are you guys seeing anything I, I, and i'm i have to say this as we've said this for more than two years now right you're not epidemiologist but is there anything in any of the numbers sash maybe uh start us off yeah i mean look in terms of traffic and um from a, uh from a global perspective first of all the the standout issue last week was china where um uh traffic volumes were falling uh, significantly, and that that's dragging the overall uh, uh, volumes down. Um, as regards to the the impact of the BA two variant, yeah, it's clearly very very widespread uh, here in the UK and in Europe. Actually, the thing that is more likely to be affecting um, 
uh, air traffic at the moment. And it's, this is a funny period because we're clearly just at the start of the Easter holidays. But I think what's going to be affecting forward look bookings in uh, Europe is actually going to be inflation, specifically as it applies to fuel prices. I mean, here in the UK, fuel prices are up quarter on quarter, 50%. They're going to be up another 50% um, in uh, Q3. And that just takes a huge bite out of family disposable income. And that's probably going to have a bigger effect on uh, air travel than COVID at the moment. Um, COVID is, it's almost, it's always, it's always there. It has become certainly in in people's minds, if not medically, endemic. But it's the it's fuel prices, uh, home heating specifically, electricity, and then the risk of fuel surcharges by airlines. I think that's actually going to be the story as we go through the summer. Uh, Ron and Richard. The thing I've said the whole time, still true. You know, we've been on the same trajectory for some time, with a few zigs and zags associated with you know, various viral event, various, uh, you know, variants and, and sorry, let me start over. You know, what I, what I started saying years ago is that, you know, we're going to stay on a trajectory with a bunch of zigs and zags. And we're seeing that slightly now, but I don't think it's anything serious. The only thing that has me at all concerned is the situation in China with their traffic recovery or lack thereof. And that's purely the result of policy. In this case, it is not uh, the disease getting a vote. It is governmental incompetence getting a vote. Right. Um, any uh, update on the Chinese uh, crash? Uh, I think the fact that we're not hearing anything is in itself kind of an update. I'm not really sure why they wouldn't have been able to produce something from these recorders. Um, you know, you got to be really cautious about these things. And we certainly don't know anything for certain yet. But this is a weird combination of a plane that did something that planes generally don't do on their own, which is do a nosedive, coupled with that strange recovery uh, for a moment, followed by a resumed nosedive, followed by the lack of any pilot comms, followed by the lack of any precedent that resembles this, followed now by the deafening silence from the recorders. That to me says the bulk of the you know, odds have shifted towards some kind of malice, be it terror or be it pilot suicide or something bad happened in that plane that resulted in this happening. And it would be great if the Chinese government would enlighten us with whatever they found on the reporters. Ron uh, and Sash, anything you guys want to add before we uh, shift really quickly to F-35? And and Sash, I have to ask you about the 40th anniversary of the start of the Falklands War. I think Richard kind of hit it on the nose, right? you, You don't know. Did something that's not common that yeah, airplanes can do funny things. Uh, I do hope uh, if there is um, usable data on the recorders that it gets shared and we all learn from what happened, um, even if it was some sort of human failure on some point. Uh, generally, there's things that can be learned from all of it and how to prevent that from happening again in the future. So I, yeah, I hope there is reasonable disclosure. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll learn over time. Very quickly, uh, anything new? Richard, uh, you get uh, displaced from this conversation because you and I already talked about the F-35 in Canada because we talked right after the announcement was made. Uh, any uh, commentary from Sash and, and Ron uh, on this? Ron, why don't you start us off, right? I mean, symbolically important, Canada was always a uh, observer on the program. So many of us would have been surprised if the answer had not been the F-35, especially uh, because of the role Canadian industry has in uh, in the program, uh, despite sort of a rocky journey, but your sort of sense on what it means and does it really mean a lot? 
or not really? I mean, it gets back to Richard's point on, on F-35, right? It's yet another international customer for, for their aircraft. Uh, you know, way back when, when the airplane was uh, pitched to the investment community by, by Lockheed, um, they said, hey, look look at the F-16 and look how international it was. And you know, the demand for this program ultimately ended up being much more than anybody thought at the beginning because of the international component. Um, you know, it looks like the F-35 is starting to go down that path. Uh, and that really does make you scratch your head on the numbers you see thrown, out, thrown around out there. Um, you know, particularly that 156 uh, number for kind of the top end of production. Uh, be it that uh, you know, Richard argued, and I think you know, reasonably that you know, it could be 80, 180, 190 aircraft by the time you start factoring in the international demand. And, and, and there's still negotiations going on with other countries, right? So it's not like the international demand parade is over, right? It's, it's still continuing. So um, I, I think it's important from, from, from that front uh, and ultimately how you know, the program you know, settles in at a production rate that can both satisfy U.S. demand and this growing international demand. Last uh, question. Sash, uh, it is the 40th anniversary of the start of the Falkland Islands War, right? I mean, seen as April uh, the 2nd uh, with uh, the invasion of Argentine forces uh, landing in Port Stanley. Uh, I can't believe it's been 40 years, but alas, it, it, it has been. I should, I should point out that uh, I, I proudly visited HMS Hermes uh, in New York Harbor uh, because after, if I recall correctly, after uh, the war, she went back home, then she went on a NATO exercise, and the NATO exercise brought her to this side of the Atlantic and, and spent a couple of days uh, aboard there, uh, uh, aboard the ship, um, the, the, the great ship that then became the flagship of the Indian Navy and was recently retired, and I believe uh, is, is sadly going to be scrapped, is, is my understanding, uh, as opposed to preserved as a, as a museum. But I'm sure somebody in the audience will correct me on, on that. Sort of give us give us your sense on on sort of the sense uh, in the UK because some Tory lawmakers are drawing parallels between you know Brexit, Ukraine, the Falklands, you know all of this sort of gets tied into sort of a bigger narrative. But sort of walk us through uh, you know some thoughts as we as we prepare to commemorate the 40th anniversary of what was uh, an extraordinary war and a war that actually gave a lot of credibility uh, during the height of the Cold War. Um, to the United Kingdom and its military capabilities, right? I mean, if it was willing to go 8,300 miles to do something like this, uh, it was it was sort of seen as Britain is back. But sort of give us your sense. Uh, look, I, I, I'll just start by, by a personal thing. It was one of the most important events of my life. Uh, two vignettes. One, uh, I did my, uh, my course as a platoon commander in the British infantry the summer of 82. We were already being taught by veterans of the Falklands. What we were being taught in terms of infantry tactics was, uh, in many respects, it was it was what it always should have been, but it, it felt revolutionary. And being taught by people who had been there and were passing this stuff on uh, to very, very junior uh, officers and uh, officer cadets was uh, an astonishing experience. Um, the very first job I did was building air-to-air refueling tankers for the Royal Air Force. Uh, that was when I graduated from college. And uh, we, uh, the firm I worked for had already done the conversion of C-130s into tankers, and that enabled the um, immediate post-war uh, reinforcement of the, uh, the Falklands and the operation of fast, air, fast jets out of Port Stanley. And then we were working on a much bigger program, which was converting L-1011 TriStars for the, effectively the air bridge from Ascension Islands to 
to Port Stanley, the ability to reinforce uh, the Falklands with a battalion or more of infantry, literally within 36 hours, and tow, uh, you know, half a dozen uh, fast fast jets uh, with us at the same time. So, it, you know, it's terribly important for me personally, but it really changed. Uh, it was phenomenally important for the UK politically. It uh, there had been a trend referred to as declinism, but you know the perpetual British decline, which for those who were unfortunate enough to live politically through the the late sixties and the uh, the seventies felt very very entrenched indeed. The Falklands turned that around militarily. It showed that the British armed forces was still uh, a very very competent, uh, very well trained um, uh, set of forces who could do complex combined arms, uh, complex joint operations in a way that very few other countries uh, could or arguably still can. And it's important to remember, I think, that the, uh, the Royal Navy delivered a complete division over the beach. Uh, this was not a, um, it was not necessarily a hostile landing, but it was a deeply hostile environment in terms of the air environment. The logistics sucked. Um, we never had air superiority, but the Royal Navy delivered a, and supported an entire division in a, an incredibly austere environment. And that infantry division then went and won. Fantastic. Uh, and what was the company you were working for? Because just about everybody will ask this question. <clears throat> uh, Marshals of Cambridge, who uh, have done most of the air-to-air refueling tankers, uh, the special ones of probably the last 40 years or so. A great company along with uh, Cobham. Uh, that uh, obviously the pi- one of the true pioneers in uh, aerial refueling was. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Cobham Co- are Cobham fantastic, and they they were the subcontractor. They produced the the, the probe and drogue equipment for everybody. Uh, Marshall's actually built the aircraft, uh, turned a passenger aircraft into a flying petrol station. Uh, absolutely. Sorry, gas. Uh, gas uh, yeah, exactly. No, I, I think we understand. I think we understand, uh, Sash. <laughs> and before we end it for the week, any last thoughts? Because I think, Richard, you've got an interesting one. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I went to grad school in Britain for war studies in the immediate aftermath of the Falklands. And I'd like to congratulate everybody there <laughs> who was involved, including you, Sash. I mean, it, it, so it, it, we can learn so much from this today. Uh, and the biggest thing for me is that quantitatively outnumbered forces with superior training, uh, doctrine, morale, most of all, can deal a death blow to a despicable aggressor and bring down a totalitarian regime. That's what happened then. And I sure hope it's what's happening now. Uh, here, here, uh, Richard. Um, really, really yeah, well I'm said. Amen to that. Amen, amen to that. Uh, exactly. Everybody, thanks so much uh, again for joining us. It's always, uh, it's always a treat. Uh, have a great day. Uh, a great week and look forward to having you all back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Vago. Really appreciate it, Vago. Thanks. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. 
Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.